Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Was the cruelty the point? I'm Sean Ailing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. That phrase, the cruelty is the point, achieved mantra status during the Trump presidency. It was coined by Adam Serwer, a writer at The Atlantic, and for my money, one of our sharpest observers of race and American politics. Serwer recently released an anthology of his writings during the Trump era, with his famous essay on cruelty at the center. The pieces span almost the entirety of American history, and they touch too many topics to summarize here. But if there's a unifying question, it's this. What role does cruelty play in America? His answer is complicated, but worth pondering. For him, individual cruelty isn't really the problem. Sure, people can be cruel, but people can be lots of things. And a healthy society is more than capable of channeling our vices. Serwer's argument is that the structure of American politics itself is cruel. Indeed, cruelty has been weaponized. While Serwer recognizes that cruelty, over time, has been a bipartisan feature of American politics, he believes it's now central to the Republican Party. This is not the same as saying individual Republicans are cruel, or that all Republicans are cruel. The point is that the GOP, as a matter of strategy, is incentivizing cruelty. I want to talk to Adam about not just the role of cruelty in American life, but about some of the challenges of making these sorts of distinctions. Why is cruelty in American politics so damn effective? And can we ever truly get rid of it? Well, first of all, Adam Serwer, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. I feel like I've been kind of hovering in your digital orbit for a while, but we never had a chance to actually speak. So I'm um, pumped to finally engage. Yeah, it's great to finally talk. I guess not in person is the wrong way to describe it, but... No, it's, I'll take it. So let me start here. You say in the book that your project was really always about understanding the deeper ideological trends that led to Trump. And I think the reflexive answer here for most people is also the simplest, racism. Racism is obviously a, a part of this story. It's a part of the story you tell. But your answer is cruelty, which is related, but a slightly different way to frame this. And I want to just start there. What role has cruelty played in American politics and what role does it play now? 
So I sort of built the book thematically around a column I wrote in 2019 after a rally in which Donald Trump went after Christine Blasey Ford, who had said that now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh had sexually assaulted her when they were teenagers. But I'm thinking of cruelty as sort of not an individual problem, although it certainly is that all human beings are capable of cruelty. Unfortunately, it's part of human nature. What I try to do in the book is focus on it as a part of American politics, specifically the way that it has been used in the past to demonize certain groups in order to justify denying people their basic rights under the Constitution and exclude them from the political process. And I think our system incentivizes this because the structure of it from being able to gerrymander the House to malapportionment in the Senate to the Electoral College allows one party to win power without winning a majority of the votes. Uh, And so it becomes urgent for that party to persuade its base that they're on the verge of destruction and anything they do to prevent that is therefore justified. And I think that's how you end up with things like attempting to disenfranchise rival constituencies, bans on people on on the basis of religion, attempting to torture children in order to prevent their parents from attempting to bring them to the United States for a better life, you know, trying to affect a nationwide racial gerrymander using the census in order to enhance the power of white voters at the expense of minority voters. And what I was trying to do was, because so much of the Trump era journalism has been focused on his personality, because he is such a sort of idiosyncratic figure um, in terms of his like public behavior, I wanted to focus on the sort of structural roots of why he rose to power. Because I think that those ideological, historical, and economic trends are things that will continue to shape American politics now that he's gone. And he was more a reflection of those things than someone who created them. And he's also a reflection of an ideological conflict that has plagued America since the founding, which is, you know, are we a so-called white Christian nation or are we a nation where everybody's equal? And I think that those two sort of ideological trends are both authentic expressions of the American idea. And so they have been in conflict right from the very beginning and continue to be to this day. There are different layers here. I mean, there's someone like a Mitch McConnell who is very strategically committed to power and its preservation. And then there's the, you know, kind of John Doe voter. And you do something I haven't seen many other people do, which is try to take this idea of, quote, owning the libs very seriously, treating it, you know, not as a an online hobby or a trolling device, but as a way of political being. You know, owning the libs isn't just a means to some political end. It is the end. It is the reason for doing politics at all. I mean, is that a kind of fair account of how you see it or am I misrepresenting it. I don't think that's a fair kind of how I see it. I certainly think that owning the libs is a manifestation of the larger kind of politics that I'm talking about. You know, and just for your listeners, just referring to this sort of culture of it doesn't really matter what we're doing as long as like liberals are in anguish about it. And I think, you know, there is an aspect of that to Donald Trump. People liked how mad he made certain kinds of people. And, And there's also sort of a weird aspect to that where it's like it's almost like it's an argument that pretty comfortable people are having about who is owning and who is being owned where the actual vulnerable people who are being affected by these policies that are supposedly owning the libs are just pawns in this argument between well-situated people which is frustrating 
But I think that it's not simply about punishment, but Donald Trump's willingness to specifically go after Democratic-leaning constituencies was a kind of process of community formation. It was a way of saying, we're us and they're them. And because the them is trying to destroy us, we're justified in anything we do to them. And I do think that that remains for the moment the kind of animating purpose of Republican politics. My, my theory of that is that it is a manifestation of racial polarization in the electorate and the ability to use the counter-majoritarian levers of the American system to maintain power without winning over a more diverse constituency. And I think as long as that's the case, I mean, you look back to 2012 when in the aftermath of Mitt Romney's defeat, there was this sort of soul-searching that went on in the Republican Party, like, well, Mitt did that self-deportation thing and he, you know, sought Donald Trump's endorsement, the endorsement of the most prominent birther in the country. He like, you know, made jokes in Michigan about how everybody there knows where he was born as opposed to Barack Obama because, you know, he's a secret Muslim and foreigner who was born in Kenya or something. And so, you know, th there was like a, a moment where they were reconsidering this approach. And then the people who ended up running Donald Trump's campaign were very much invested in this idea that going full in on white identity politics would be successful. And in terms of winning a majority of the American people, it was not successful, but it was successful in terms of exploiting the ideal geographic distribution of a certain segment of the American electorate in order to win power. And because even though Republicans lost the Senate in 2020 and also lost the presidency, they did so much better than they were expected to do that there's no level of deterrence really that was implemented by that. In their view, even without Donald Trump, Trump-style politics is the path forward. And I think unless you know their incentives change, they're going to continue down that path. And it's a path that we've seen other parties take in similar situations throughout American history. So it's not you know, this is what I mean by cruelty on a political level rather than an individual level. It's a response to the way that our system functions more than just, you know, one group of people being evil. Yeah, that's an interesting move you make in this book where you try to kind of formulate cruelty less as an individual attribute and more as a kind of structural feature of American politics itself. Yeah, I mean, um, look, because we're all capable of cruelty. I've been cruel before. Uh, everyone has. I mean, the, one of the ways that I try to explain it and particularly the way cruelty works as a process of community formation is like, you know, when you're a kid and there's a group of cool kids who are teasing the nerdy kid and you're not a part of either group, you might join in because you want to be a part of the cool kids or you might simply be silent because you don't want the cool kids to come after you. But either way, the cool kids who are teasing the nerdy kid are bonding with each other over this sort of act of meanness and transgression. And to some extent, this is what's happening on a political level at these rallies where Trump is attacking people who symbolize a political or cultural change that the Republican base finds threatening or menacing. And it is simply an aspect of human nature that has been weaponized by a certain style of politics. I don't think it's inherently unique to a particular ideology, just looking at American history, but it is a big part of Republican politics at the moment. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. Cruelty as a means to community formation. I mean, obviously that's not new, right? I mean, in order to form a community, you have to define yourself in terms of what you're not. And so there's always that kind of opposition there. But is there something distinct about that and abject cruelty as a kind of motive force? 
Yeah, I mean, I think if you look, for example, at the turn of the 20th century, at the end of Reconstruction, you know, a lot of Black people are disenfranchised. And towards the end of the 19th century, you know, years after Reconstruction has ended, there's this new wave of white supremacist violence and disenfranchisement that occurs. And even though Reconstruction has already ended, there's a deliberate effort on the part of the white economic elites in the South to win over the white working class by engaging in a campaign of just virulent white supremacist racism. And and it works. And it shatters this sort of emerging alliance between black and white populace that was being built in that era. You know, I wrote about this in my New York Times piece, but these sort of acts of cruelty, you know, form a community based on race and they shatter one that might have transcended it. And even after Black people are disenfranchised, these waves of violence continue because they help uh, reinforce the color line. So it's not simply, I mean, like there's obviously like personal sadism and violence involved, but on a larger political level, it is a way to say, we are doing this because these people are a danger to our way of life and we have to do it in order to maintain our status and our political system. I mean, when, when they were doing this, their argument I quote a a former Confederate soldier and and later U.S. senator who says, you know, he talks about how enfranchising black men was a mistake because all they had was hatred towards their former owners. So even even in 1890, they're doing the the reverse racism thing. And it's being done by people who literally owned human beings and also fought and betrayed their country to own them. And so this creates a kind of political necessity and helps sustain that political necessity of disenfranchisement to create a society in which you or the group that you are identified with can maintain permanent political hegemony, even as you're calling it a democracy, because your vision of democracy does not include people who are unlike you. This is the problem I think a lot of conservatives have with this idea of the cruelty is the point. And I'm sure you've heard this line of attack before. And so... Let's just broach it here because I'm curious how you know you respond to it. And the gist of it is that, you know, look, in many ways, Trump is very easy to understand. He's a simple creature. He's a tiny tyrant and a malignant narcissist with daddy issues. And many of his supporters are no doubt sadist and racist, but there are many, many others for whom cruelty and racism is not the point. And I'm curious how you account for their embrace of Trump. I mean, does your understanding of Trump allow for the possibility of well-intentioned people supporting him? I think that there is a distinction between the type of person whose identity has become subsumed in Trumpism and someone like a marginal Trump voter who is less emotionally and politically committed to him and is just like trying to make the best decision they can. I think there's a genuine distinction between those things, but I also think that doesn't actually change my description of what Trump believes he is doing, what the Republican Party is doing, or what they symbolize. I mean, in 1932, Franklin Roosevelt won the black vote in the North and it was an earthquake. But that didn't actually mean that the Democratic Party was no longer a white supremacist organization. It was in the midst of an identity crisis over, or it was about to enter an identity crisis about what it would be as a result of these new voters it was bringing in with the New Deal and the possibility that government could actually improve people's lives. But that didn't change the fact that the Democratic Party in the South was what it was. And similarly, I don't think the presence of Trump voters who are lukewarm 
or, you know, ambivalent about his behavior changes the nature of what he represented, what he did, what the Republican Party is currently trying to do. And I think that is mostly an excuse to avoid the implications of that. Obviously, you wrote that famous essay, The Cruelty is the Point, and it blew up the interwebs, and there was a lot of reaction to it. Were any of the conservative responses persuasive to you? Did any of them stick out to you as um, something that either gave you pause or forced you to reconsider some aspect of your thesis? I think that a lot of the time what I get in terms of criticism for that essay is a misinterpretation that I'm saying liberals are wonderful and conservatives are evil, which is not what I'm saying. I'm discussing this as a political phenomenon that is something that is downstream from the parties' respective coalitions. That is, it's not so much that liberals are like better people. It's that the Democratic Party is a party that is made up of many different religious ethnic and ideological coalitions, you have to stitch together church ladies in South Carolina with like hipsters in Brooklyn. And what that means is that the party cannot engage in a kind of exclusivist identity politics. And the way that you know this is that anytime a Democrat says something that can be construed as condescending to rural or high school educated white Americans, it blows up and becomes like Republicans try to turn it into a big scandal, whether it's Obama saying cling to guns or religion or Hillary Clinton talking about deplorables. It becomes a huge scandal precisely because Democrats are also reliant on those kinds of votes, even though those most of those groups vote Republican, whereas Republicans are not. So that's how you get people like Ted Cruz talking about how Californians shouldn't move to Texas or all the like weird NPR tote bag mocking stuff that happens every time a Republican does like a stump speech in front of a crowd. This kind of exclusivist politics is only possible when you have a party that is relatively homogeneous in terms of race and religion and ideology. Now, it's possible that the Republican Party changes in the long term as a result of its Uh, relative success in the last election in terms of diversifying its vote. I mean, maybe, you know, we're watching something like what happened in 1932. But the reaction to the 2020 election, unfortunately, was to double down on this white identity politics, whether it's in the state legislatures or whether it's on conservative media where you can hear, you know, all this like sort of great replacement light nonsense that itself is disproven by the results in the 2020 election. Maybe they step back from that radicalization against democracy in the long term. But right now they're doubling down on it. And again, I think that's not, you know, necessarily a question of liberal or conservative. I think it's a question of who your party represents. But I I do not really find it persuasive if people try to tell me that Trump does not enjoy hurting people and making lots of people laugh when he does it. I just don't think that that is a persuasive argument. And I don't think it's persuasive that the people who are laughing when he is being cruel to people are not enjoying that. You know, I, I've not heard a persuasive refutation. In fact, I have very frequently encountered conservatives trying to flip it back on me and saying that liberals are being cruel in a particular instance, which is true because liberals are sometimes cruel. It's a fact of human nature. When Texas had its big blackout, you know, I'm sitting in my living room and it's 50 degrees in the house and my daughter is bundled up in her bubble coat and there are assholes on Twitter saying, well, that's what you get for voting for Greg Abbott. You know, that's obviously shitty. Like, liberals are not immune to behaving that way. What's different is that you did not see, 
you know, any of the senators from California laughing at people in Texas the way Ted Cruz did when California was having its blackouts. And that's what I mean by cruelty on a political level. It's a phenomenon that is related to the respective parties' coalitions. It's not about individual people being assholes, which, of course, all human beings, regardless of their political leanings, are capable of virtue and vice. Yeah, I think another way to get at the same thing maybe is to ask why you think white identity politics works. I suppose one of the conservative counter narratives is that it's not cruelty so much as the reality of loss, especially cultural loss, and that that is distinct from cruelty as a motivating force. Do you buy that at all? You know, I think that there is a distinction between having a legitimate grievance and the means of acting on that grievance being praiseworthy. For example, I think it is completely rational for conservatives who, you know, in 2004 believed that they were winning the fight on same-sex marriage. And all of a sudden, 10 years later, Barack Obama's position on same-sex marriage in 2008 is now something that would get you called a homophobe. That is really rapid cultural change. And I think for someone who is, you know, very religious and as a result of their religious beliefs does not, you know, believe in same-sex marriage, I think obviously for that person, that's very disorienting and scary. And I understand that. I don't think that necessarily means, though, uh, that it's good to then pass laws criminalizing or banning gender-affirming care for trans children because you're afraid that you're going to lose another culture war fight. So I would distinguish between people who are frustrated with their economic circumstances or with the rapid pace of cultural change and have like genuine feelings about that. Like, yes, obviously those are are real things and they don't just happen to conservatives. But I don't think that means that you then get to just like stop on someone who's weaker than you to deal with your frustration about that. Speaking of stomping on the weak, whatever happened to civility in political discourse? Or is that term civility just a way of avoiding criticism? I ask Adam Serwer after the break. This is probably as good a place as any to ask you about civility. As you say, civility can mean not being an asshole or it can mean I can do what I want and you can shut the fuck up. Yeah. And as, as you argued, it's that latter definition that has prevailed certainly in the last four years or so. And also, you know, like you, I, I believe that liberal democratic politics is defined by tension and the price of yeah. total reconciliation is often some form of tyranny. But that also raises a question about persuasion, right? Something that is fundamental to any intelligible conception of liberal democracy. You know, either we can have good faith conversations with people and arrive at some kind of peace or mutual understanding, which is not to say agreement, but an understanding, or we can't. And if we can't do that because of cruelty or resentment or because we live in an info ecosystem that prevents it, what are we supposed to do? How can politics ever be anything more than just rallying your team against the dangerous other? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, again, you know, during the whole civility debate, which has morphed into the cancel culture debate, which is, you know, morphed into others. I mean, I think that these conversations are always downstream of, of a larger structural problem. In the civility essay, you know, I was trying to distinguish between civility as like mutual respect, which is reciprocal, 
and civility as like a power move, like the way Donald Trump understood it, where he's like, we need to end the politics of personal destruction. And also here's why this person is a dumb loser and should be destroyed and put in jail. Yeah, I was trying to distinguish between those two concepts. And in that essay, I talk about how the golden age of bipartisan comedy was, you know, in part a function of the total exclusion of black people from political life. And so it's not something that should be imitated. What we want, I think, is a political system in which we can resolve conflicts peacefully because that's, after all, the point of democracy. The point of democracy is not to agree on everything. It is to have fierce political debates and then come to a just outcome, whether you're in the minority or the majority. But I don't think that's possible when we have a political structure that validates a kind of politics that involves disenfranchising or delegitimizing the rival party's constituency. And once upon a time, it was the Democratic Party, and today it's the Republican Party. But ultimately, the only just arrangement is where everyone in the country has sufficient political rights to have a say in who governs them. And anything less than that is unjust. And I think ultimately, to have actual civility, you have to have people who are able to talk to each other on an even plane because they have the same political rights. One person is not elevated above the other in political status. In a larger civic sense, obviously, there's no society that has eliminated inequality. But I mean, in terms of people having full rights to the franchise and not having their votes diminished or diluted by disenfranchisement or gerrymandering or things like that. Yeah, it's hard to see a way around this impasse, right? I mean, I know you say, or at least hint in the book, that you think our political future might be more volatile than a lot of people are willing to entertain. Is that correct? And how worried are you? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, in 2012, after Mitt Romney lost, I don't think anybody assumed that Donald Trump was going to be the next president of the United States. You know, there have obviously been some important changes and shifts within both the Democratic and Republican coalitions. And those, the results of those changes are not always immediately visible after uh, the last election. So I'm not sure what's going to happen. I do think that unless the Democrats do things like reduce Senate malapportionment somewhat with the admission of new states and pass laws that will prevent election subversion and disenfranchisement, I think that the Republican Party is going to continue on the path that it's on simply because that path is a viable one for holding power. I think to the extent that the Biden administration has done a pretty good job, it is being responsive to the COVID crisis. But I, there are massive changes that happen so slowly that we can't see them. And then when they manifest, they seem extremely rapid. And given how much changed from 2012 to 2016, I think it would be foolhardy to assume that the Democratic Party and Republican Party that exists today are necessarily going to be the ones that exists 10 years from now. But who knows? Do you actually think that persuasion is possible given where we are right now? I think that there is a lot of evidence put forth by political science that persuasion does happen and people do change their minds and make choices. Obviously, at the moment, the parties are pretty polarized. So millions of people's opinions are very entrenched. But one of the things that's interesting about it, and I talk about this in the book, there's a book by a political scientist named Liliana Mason who points out that Americans actually agree on a lot of policy issues. There actually isn't a tremendous amount of disagreement on some of the things that seem 
very polarized at the moment. It's mostly the fact that we're polarized on questions of identity that is fueling this sort of tenor of our politics. So I think the answer is yes, I do think persuasion exists. And second, I think people are actually probably closer to each other's opinions than maybe they think they are. And I think to some extent, this is being driven by, in particular, how the Republican Party has chosen to maintain power, but how parties decide that they want to win and hold power, as opposed to, you know, there's a lot of nonsense about like civil war and stuff like that. And I just do not see that. You know, I live in Texas. I live in a conservative state. I do not see people at being at each other's throats in that way that it seems like they are on social media and in the larger political discourse. I think that the tone of that discourse, because it is dominated by partisans, has that tone to it. But I think most people are worried about the things that regular people are worried about, which is, you know, feeding their families, getting a good job, making enough money to live as decently as they can. And those people are not like those of us who are hyper engaged in politics in terms of their identities are not quite as defined by those divisions. And that's a tremendous amount of people. Those people are capable of being persuaded and politicians you know, Democrats and Republicans have different ideas about how persuasion works, but I think it's actually not true that nobody changes their mind. I think a lot of people do every election. Yeah, I agree. And I see the same thing where I live, but I also think that you're right that civility is not going to work with this version of the Republican Party. It's very hard to engage with someone who's telling you to go fuck yourself. And to the extent that it's true that the Republican Party cannot survive by appealing to more and more voters, that it's strategically committed to minority rules. See, I, I want to dispute this real quickly. I hope you won't mind me doing that. Yeah, sure. They seem to believe that they cannot grow their base beyond. But I don't think that's true. I think that, you know, yeah. there's never going to be a time in America where there aren't people who have conservative opinions on things. In fact, many people who vote for Democrats have conservative opinions. Conservatives are a big chunk of the Democratic Party, fewer than they used to be, but they remain a big chunk of the Democratic Party. So I think that what I'm trying to say is that they have chosen this path, but I do not think it is the only path available to them. I don't want to remove their agency like that. I think that there is a Republican Party that could win a majority of the votes in the United States and that is not hemmed in to a base that is merely ideally geographically distributed. I think that they do not want to make the changes they would have to make in order to be that party because they see a viable path to power through other means. But I think that it is a myth that they could not be a party of the majority. It is simply that they have made a choice not to be. So it sounds like you think we may not actually be stuck in a doom loop? I don't know if we're stuck in a doom loop or if the doom loop is going to get worse or if it's going to get better. I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. I feel like my job is simply to describe what I see happening. I'm loath to make predictions because, you know, you never know what's going to happen. There are all kinds of, I understand why political prognostication is such a sort of popular field but I do not believe in my ability to make those kinds of predictions, and so I won't. What I will say is that when you look at the past, things change pretty dramatically, even when they seem to most people to seem permanent. Well, speaking of doom loops, I have to ask, because it's related in all kinds of ways to a lot of the things we've been talking about. 
what do you make of all this anti-critical race theory hysteria? How does that fold into the broader conversation you're having in this book and that we're having now? So I think there's obviously a lot of really silly essentialist nonsense that comes from, you know, these like weird diversity and inclusion trainings. I think those are almost like completely unrelated to actual civil rights activism. There's sort of a, a liability shield for corporations who are trying to make sure that they don't face any kind of discrimination lawsuit. But I also think that it's very clear that these laws are intended to have a chilling effect in which people are not able to discuss accurately the history of racism in the United States. And I think they're, they're primarily a reaction to, I think around 2014, 2015, when Ferguson happened, you know, Matt Iglesias, you know, wrote this piece for Vox called The Great Awakening, which is the increasing racial liberalism of white college educated Democrats. And I think what happened was basically there was this grappling to try to understand how do we still have these tremendous racial equality inequalities in a country where we elected a black president. And I think that necessarily led to an examination of history. And because of that, people's understanding of American history changed and therefore their understanding of whether or not the present and the circumstances of the present are just changed. And so I think that conservatives, even though, I mean, like they're calling it critical race theory, but what they're really frustrated with is this evaluation of history that led to this increasing racial liberalism and things like the George Floyd protests last year. Um, and it's not just about examination of history. It's also about things like the proliferation of cell phone cameras has allowed black people to capture everyday instances of police abuse and violence that because America is so segregated, many white Americans simply did not or could not believe they existed. I mean, this also happened in the 1960s. So many of the iconic images of the civil rights movement are images of police brutality. And so I think it's a combination of factors. And what these sort of anti-critical race theory laws are trying to do, although they are sort of ostensibly aimed at the kind of foolish essentialism that you sometimes see on the left, what they're really about is preventing us from discussing history in a way that would reveal how much American public policy has shaped racial inequalities, both in the past and the present. Well, you mentioned the essentialism there a couple of times, and I, I do want to ask about that because I, I agree. I think it's a lot of it is silly and counterproductive. And you bring this up in the book. I mean, you, you explicitly choose not to say capitalize the letter B in the word black. Why did you do that? I feel very strongly that one of the key things that we need to understand as a society is that race is a myth. It is a biological fiction. And we have built entire systems of oppression and exploitation around this biological fiction. And so one of the things that happened in the aftermath of the George Floyd protests was that many publications, including my publication, The Atlantic, decided to start capitalizing the being black as a sort of an acknowledgement of the specific experience of African-American descendants of slaves. And I understand that impulse, but I prefer not to do it because I feel like it reifies that same biological fiction that we're trying to break down. And so I prefer not to capitalize it. You know, I'm not criticizing everyone else who does it, but it is my personal preference because I feel like it's counterproductive. You mentioned the George Floyd murder and all the protests that kind of sprang up out of that in 
2020 and we had this you know massive mobilization against racism and it kind of dominated the public conversation really ever since and then we now have this absolute moral panic over crt a term which almost no one understands and almost everyone uses haphazardly but it does kind of feel like this reactionary counter movement against what happened in 2020 and really an attempt to fundamentally delegitimize everything that it stood for and crt has just kind of been co-opted as a symbol for all of that I mean, do you think that's kind of an instructive way to see big picture what's happened I think the way to look at it is that they're basically trying to stigmatize the language used to describe why racial inequalities continue to persist. Because from a conservative perspective, these inequalities are the result of natural differences in ability, not public policy. And to the extent that they are were created by public policy, those things have all been dealt with and we have perfect racial equality now. And so any state effort to rectify those inequalities would be unjust. And I think that's actually the argument we're having. And what the whole CRT debate from the conservative side is trying to do is to stigmatize the language used to describe these circumstances so as to sever the analysis from the moral obligation to do anything about racial inequality. I'm not saying that they've never made a legitimate criticism or that some of the stuff I've seen floating out there isn't stupid, but that's fundamentally what this is about. It is about preventing any serious government effort to rectify racial inequality because they think that would be wrong. Do you think the anti-racist movement on the left, at least in the last you know two years or so, has overstepped in ways that may have intensify this dialectic or hasten this backlash? Or was this backlash inevitable in any case? I think the history of the United States shows that the backlash to the George Floyd protests was inevitable. I mean, I wrote about it in the book last year saying, eventually there is going to be a backlash and a retrenchment to this. And there was. And that's not because I am particularly smart. It is because when you look at the history of the United States, there are these moments of like great awakening over the continuing effects of racism on, on American life and the, how they circumscribe the freedoms and liberty of black Americans. And then, you know, sometimes there are great advances that happen and then eventually there's a backlash. That's just history. And so I will make an exception here to my inability to predict things. It was not difficult to see that we would go through a similar cycle this time. And I don't think that differences in language or approach necessarily would have prevented that from happening. But but do you think there were excesses, things that could have been avoided or done better? <sighs> I mean, I'm sure there were. I mean, like it, everybody makes mistakes. It's hard for me to think of a particular, like most of the things that bother me about that time were superficial gestures of solidarity that neither addressed the actual problem that people concerned with or were about corporate branding in order to, you know, right. instead of talking about racism as a structural force that affects people's social and economic realities as like a consumer model of racism where you change your individual behavior and are thus like in some sense socially saved because you have personally rejected racism rather than it being about the people whose lives are actually shaped by continuing discrimination in American public policy. Those are the things that bother me. I'm sure that there are things that if you brought them to me and said, you know, do you agree with this? I might not agree with it. But I don't really think the sins here are on the part of the racial justice movement. Yeah. You know, there's a trope I know you've heard a bunch of times. You hear it on the right, 
hear it on the the center left, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, that basically says, you know, we've got to strive for more race neutral politics that we're making race too front and center. And it's just poor political strategy. And if we want any chance of moving forward, we have to find another way to organize and mobilize. Do you think that's possible? What's wrong with that aim or misguided? I'm not a political strategist and no one should ever come to me for advice on how to win elections or anything like that. But this idea, you know, like Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan said this is like, you know, racism would would be served by some benign neglect. And I want to give an example of how that philosophy actually manifests in the real world. So when John Roberts was a young lawyer at the Justice Department, he was arguing against the, the Voting Rights Act at the time was up for reauthorization. And they wanted to add a part to Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act that said voting practices that would have the purpose or effect of discriminating against minority groups would also violate the Voting Rights Act. And Roberts argued against this very vociferously. Now, the reason that people wanted to add that was because obviously it was the 1980s. Lawmakers weren't being idiots anymore and making overtly racist statements when they were trying to racially discriminate against their populations. So it was important to look not just at, you know, what could be publicly known about why these laws were crafted, but the effect that they had. And he argued against it. And then, of course, years later, he guts the crucial section of the Voting Rights Act that put jurisdictions largely in the South, but not entirely in the South. Much of New York was also under Section 5 from having to submit their election law changes to the Justice Department before they're made. And his philosophy was, you know, the South's changed. We don't need this thing anymore. It's a violation of state sovereignty that can't be justified by the state of racism in America. And of course, what followed by that example of benign neglect was a rash of voting restrictions that were designed to entrench or protect or enhance Republican power at the expense of Democratic constituencies. And so on the one hand, you should not judge people on the basis of their racial background and discriminate in that way. On the other hand, there's a form of colorblindness that actively facilitates denying people their rights on the basis of race. And that kind of colorblindness is not benign at all. You're right that race is a biological fiction. But is race, is the social construct of race baked into our political DNA in a way that essentially condemns us to some form of racial tribalism? I don't think so. I mean, like, I'm like a squishy liberal integrationist. So, <laughs> you know, when I look at the history of the United States, racial lines are actually pretty fluid. And whiteness in particular gets redefined in every successive generation as whatever, you know, power needs it to be. I would like to believe that to the extent that we maintain a color caste system in the United States, I would like to see that dismantled. I don't think that's impossible. I think that it's interesting because one of the criticisms from the anti-CRT people is that racial justice activists see America as, quote, intrinsically racist. But they do not. If they did think that, they wouldn't be activists at all. They're trying to make a better world precisely because they do not believe that America has to be in thrall to racism, you know, as a force and as an institution. So I would say that I don't think that that is our permanent future. Um, I think that there are a lot of people who are working very hard not to make it our permanent future. But I think that there are a lot of people who tell themselves that they are not invested in that hierarchy while they do everything they can to defend it. Well, the price of past national reconciliations has been the abandonment of even the aspiration of multiracial 
democracy, a point that you make in your essays. Do you think we've just finally reached the end of that road? And if we have, what then? Look, I mean, my grandfather, he couldn't vote until he moved to New York. And most of the country was fine with that. That's just how it was. And then in 1965, we engaged as a country in a fragile experiment in multiracial democracy for the first time since Reconstruction. And Donald Trump showed us how fragile that experiment is. But I am neither optimistic nor pessimistic about our future. I can see it going either way. The ultimate legacy of the Trump era is the one that Americans are going to write now. And it fully depends on what we decide to do from here, whether it's good or bad. Well, the American story is a story. And like any story, it can be revised and renewed in real time by the people who make it up. But at the moment, American politics really does feel tragic. It seems like we're stuck in a dialectic, a vicious dialectic. And it's very easy to end in a place of complete resignation. And many people do. Can we narrativize the America of our ideals? I mean, you mentioned the 1619 Project earlier, and that I think really was a catalyzing event for all this. It was a sort of flashpoint and a much deeper and broader battle over who gets to tell our history, over who or what gets centered or decentered. You know, if the 1619 Project was a necessary corrective, perhaps even an overcorrective, is there a synthesis to this antithesis? I mean, is there a new story to tell that acknowledges the past but also points to the future? Who could possibly tell that story? Yeah, I mean, look, I think people are trying to tell that story. I mean, just going back to this question of who actually believes America is intrinsically racist, if you are accusing activists who are trying to dismantle America's racial hierarchy as it currently exists, those are people who are expressing a lot of hope in the country, in a sense, because they actually believe things can be changed. And if you're trying to prevent that because you feel it's going to lead to disaster, and you can see people on Fox News saying this all the time, you know, we're going to become Rwanda for white people, which is absolutely ridiculous and insane, but it is part of that politics of justifying cruelty towards other people. You know, in some ways, those are the people who are saying America is intrinsically racist because they're saying to the extent that this hierarchy would change at all, it would only lead to like someone else being at the bottom and that someone might be us. But that's not actually the world that their opponents are fighting for. And I think obviously everybody doesn't have to agree with everybody else about the meaning and course of our history. Part of what's great about democracy is that we are allowed to exist and have different feelings and different beliefs about the nature of our country and its history. And we can, to the extent that we have differences that need to be resolved, we can do that at the ballot box. But I don't think we all need to agree on one single particular narrative. Yeah, well, you just said we can we can handle that at the ballot box, but that's becoming less and less the case, which is part of the reason for my pessimism over the trajectory that we're on. I think that, I mean, the issue of disenfranchisement and election subversion and these attempts to exclude particular constituencies from the polity, all the other kinds of problems that we have with each other are supposed to be resolved through that. So when you start changing those rules to prevent people from actually being able to express their political will in order to resolve those problems fairly, that is an attack on democracy. And I think you're right to be pessimistic about it because it is an extremely depressing phenomenon. But Again, these are about choices that we make. We do not ha have to take this path. And to the extent that we do take this path, we should look at the people who are making those choices and make it clear that those were contingent decisions, not simply the irrevocable course of fate. 
I feel like there's a detectable pessimism in a lot of your writing that you seem a little unwilling to lean into here. And I wonder, are you just trying as much as possible to feign optimism? Or, or do you think that there may actually be some light at the end of this tunnel? Like I said, I just try to s- describe things, you know, as I see them as best as I can. I am neither optimistic nor pessimistic. Yeah. When I say that the Republican Party is going to continue on this course because the structure of American politics and their relationship with their base pushes them in that direction, you know, maybe that's pessimistic, but I honestly just feel like I'm describing what they're doing and why they're doing it. But the questions you're asking me are about our future, and I'm just unwilling to commit to the most pessimistic assessment of that because I genuinely don't know. I do not have that foreknowledge to say. And when I look back at the past, I am deeply inspired by the bravery of people who existed in much more difficult circumstances with me and still maintained a hope that the world could be a better place and worked as hard as they could to make that come to pass. And I think although some people may look at the book as depressing, that is also part of the story. Yeah, I think part of what is, at least for me, very hard about some of your writing, even when I agree with it and I agree with much of it, is there is something kind of cold and mechanistic about the account you give, right? Because it's not individualist, because it's about structures and how they operate on us and determine political attitudes and the trajectory of the country, that feels less manageable than if this was simply a problem of individual consciousness. You know what I mean? And it it just leaves me feeling like there's not a lot of hope. See, I feel the opposite because it means that people will make rational decisions based on their circumstances. And so if you change the circumstances, then their behavior will also change. I think in some ways relying on human nature itself to be different is pessimistic because obviously people are going to be people and we're flawed. Particularly, I would not say that my writing is always mechanistic, but there is a particular tone that I took when describing things in the Trump era, in part because of what I felt was a a tendency to immediately try to invert the meaning of something Trump said or did in a way to make it sound harmless. So whether it's him attacking Kaepernick and telling, you know, get that motherfucker off the field or whatever, uh, son of a bitch, sorry, I substituted with my preferred epithet, you know, or whether he's making fun of Christine Blasey Ford or whether he's saying that Latin American and African and Caribbean immigrants come from, quote, shithole countries. There were always attempts to rationalize these things as like not what they straightforwardly were. And so my approach in the Trump era was to be as analytical as possible because I saw my job as setting down a record that would persist beyond this sort of fog of war that emerged every time Trump said something and everybody would start arguing with each other about it. And one of the weirder phenomenons of the Trump era was that I feel like Trump was actually very straightforward about what he believed, why he believed it. After the Kaepernick incident, he told like his aides in the New York Times, like, my people love this stuff. So he is like very conscious of what he's doing. And in fact, I'm not sure that there's a lot of disagreement between me and Donald Trump about his politics and his approach to them. I think there is a lot of disagreement between me and the people who are defending Donald Trump because they want to rationalize behavior in a way that allows them to support it. But I think (laughs) the things that he did and said were relatively straightforward. And so I tried to lay them down as straightforwardly as possible, in part because of this phenomenon of sort of trying to 
convince people in the aftermath that what was said was not actually said. I mean, I think maybe Charlottesville is the operative example when he said there were good people on both sides of the Nazi rally and the people counter-protesting the Nazi rally. You know, there was a constant attempt to whitewash Donald Trump in real time. And this book is an attempt to ensure that that whitewashing does not take place to the extent that I am able to do that. Is there a small-D Democratic future for a Republican Party that whitewashed Donald Trump? That's coming up after the break. Trump is gone. Well, not really. He's gone-ish. He's gone-ish. And the storm he left behind is still very much with us. And in many ways, he just made the Republican Party more of what it already is. And like you said, all roads here lead to the same question, which is, can the Republican Party evolve into a, a small-D Democratic Party? And if the answer is no, then we're fucked. That's it. I think that's a real problem. I don't know the answer. I just have no certainty about what the future holds. But I think what they're doing in terms of attacking democracy right now is very dangerous. And it, that doesn't mean that it will succeed, but it is not merely dangerous because of the actual little laws that they're passing. It is dangerous because of the social and ideological habits it cultivates in the people who support them. Yeah, that's kind of an ominous note on which to end. Uh, you know, I guess one other thing I would, I would ask you know, when I read books like this, books I tend to agree with, uh, written by people I, I, I tend to share a, a political worldview with, I try to read it through the eyes of someone, you know, on the other side. And, you know, I wonder, is there a way for a Trump voter to read this book, in particular your essay on cruelty, without feeling like they're being called cruel? Is there any way for someone to be kind of wrapped up in a mass political movement built on structure without themselves being individually cruel or, or morally culpable. Yes. I mean, this is what's ironic about this conversation about like structural racism and things like that is like the point is to explain how institutions can operate and produce discriminatory outcomes in the absence of individual racial animus. As far as like a Trump supporter reading my book, look, I read books that are by people who say things that I fiercely disagree with all the time. I don't think that to the extent that they expect to live lives where their political beliefs are not fiercely criticized, I do not think that is a reasonable expectation. People, <laughs> I get people saying horrible things to me on Twitter all the time about my political beliefs. You know, that's life. They don't have to buy the book if they don't like it. If they do like it or they think I make some good points, but they think I'm too nasty to Trump supporters, that's okay. I'm not going to melt like a snowman because some people don't like my book. I don't think that picking up a book, especially from someone who is of a different political persuasion and like being mad because you don't agree with everything in there or because you would disagree with most of it is like a reasonable expectation. You know, I think it's a bit strange to read a book that you know is from a different political persuasion and become frustrated when you don't agree with everything in it. But, you know, to the extent that people in general should read political texts from different ideologies, even those from which they disagree, I, I would say that's pretty important. But, you know, I'm not saying anybody has to read my book if they're looking to do that. 
But I hope you do because I need to buy cat treats for my cats. <laughs> Look, I'm so happy we finally got a chance to speak and I really enjoyed the book. And uh, thanks so much for being here, Adam. Thanks for having me. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson is the VP of audio at Vox. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement. We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode.